We're going to enter now to a time of teaching uh, from Scripture, and so I want to invite you to go ahead and grab your Bible. Um, This morning we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 19. Steve, I'll try to read the right passage this morning. It's always helpful. 9 o'clock, kind of messed that one up. Uh, For those who are new, uh, every week we take some time and set aside uh, a space for teaching. Um, As elders, there's three of us. We have the responsibility to oversee the doctrine or the big teaching of the church, and so often it will be one of us teaching But we are so grateful that um, God has called the body to teach one another. Uh, Colossians talks about the value of of Christians who are gifted and mature teaching one another. And so uh, we we love to have spaces where men and women who are gifted and called can also teach in this space. And so today, you are so blessed to be able to hear from Steve Jager, our director of community formation, uh, as he comes to to explain and apply uh, scripture to us. And so we'll be in uh, 2 Kings 19. We're going to start in verse 14. And read down through 19, and then Steve will come and lead us. Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands, read it, then went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, please save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Brandon. Good morning, everybody. Typically, when we begin a message here after the the reading and as we get into the, the sermon itself, we take a minute to pause and just be silent and kind of listen for God's still small voice inside. It's not that I don't want to do that today, but for the sake of time, I'm going to rely on the prayer that we've had and the reading of God's word already. And then actually at the end of the sermon, we're going to experience a little bit of a practice together of prayer that will, I hope, fit that that bill right there. Um, But we're going to go ahead and dive right in. Pardon my voice. We have been moving through a series that we're calling, as you see on the screen, the Seeking the Beautiful God. And this is now week four of us moving through this series where our goal has been very simple. God is a God who seeks people. He's seeking a people to whom he can reveal himself, the fullness of who he is, all of his his character, his goodness. And this is also a people through whom he wants to reveal himself to the world. It's our, our goal in this series is very simple. We want to become those seekers after the seeking God so that we can behold him as he is more rightly and become like him to show him to the world. That's a process that always begins with God. He is the one who starts the seeking, but his seeking and his love are made complete. They reach their intended goal when we seek him back and then we keep on seeking him. And as we seek him, we come to know him. As we know him, we come to be like him. And we've already looked at a few really central traits to who this God is. 
so that we can know him as he is and so that we can become more like him in those ways. God is good. God is love, as we looked at it. It's a, you could also say God is loving, but God himself is the very definition of what love is. And then last week, God is present. And the point is not just to know these things about him. The point is actually to know him. We don't simply know that God is good. We experience his goodness. We experience his love. We experience his presence with us with all of who we are, our intellect, our emotions, our will, desires, everything, a body, soul, spirit, mind, every part of us is called to experience all of who God is. <clears throat> well, today we're coming to a fourth trait. There's, not, there's nothing like magical and holy about the particular list that we're, that we're talking about through this series, but we're coming to a fourth trait of this God who seeks us. He is a God who is trustworthy. However, we're going to approach this idea today a little bit differently than we have the last uh, three messages. Most of us already have, I would say, a passable definition of what it means for someone to be trustworthy. We have an idea in our head of what that would look like, probably because we've experienced it or we've not experienced it, maybe the opposite, in people in our lives today. To be trustworthy means that someone is worth trusting. They're worthy of our trust. And on, on the flip side of that is someone is untrustworthy. We have learned through experience that they are not to be trusted. They're not reliable. They're, they don't have our best interests at heart, whatever. What Hannah, Anderson, and Brandon have already led us through in this series has established very well that God is good, God is love, and God is present. And I would like for us to start with that assumption today, that that's kind of a baseline foundation for what it means that God is trustworthy. If God truly is good, if God truly is love and is loving toward us, and if God is with us, he's present, then he is a God who can be trusted. Now, if you hadn't heard those messages before that I've been uh, referencing here, it's totally okay. You're not being dropped into the middle of something totally new and you'll be lost. I encourage you to go back and find them on our, our website or on iTunes and listen to the recordings of those messages because they're very good. For one thing, I can't improve on them, but for another, <clears throat> we need to assume some kind of biblically sound, biblically, biblically connected definition of trustworthy today so that we can approach it from another direction. If God really is trustworthy, if he's worthy of our trust, then here's what we're going to say. We actually need to trust him. And this is not theoretical. It's not just an idea, not something that we're saying or spouting off because it seems like the Christian thing to do. <clears throat> we need to trust God in our real lives because he's trustworthy. And that's not just generally like saying, I have put my trust in Jesus as good and true and right as that is, but specifically, that means that as we're talking about this today, as you're thinking about it, as you're reflecting on it in the week to come, you're thinking about a specific circumstance or a relationship or a need in your life right now where you can bank on God being good, being loving, and being present with you right now. If he's worthy of your trust, you are being called to trust him with that. 
So we don't need to lay out a super extensive definition of the word trust either. It's a word that, especially in the New Testament, gets connected to the idea of faith. One of the best definitions that I've heard of trust or faith is that it's acting on the assumption that God is as good as his word. Trust or faith is acting on the assumption that God is as good as his word. That means that we are arranging our lives, we're setting our priorities, we do everything that we do in a way that is counting on God to be good, to be loving, and to be present with you in that circumstance. But that is a whole lot easier said than done, isn't it? Some of you are hearing that and you're saying, hey, I want to, I, I want to do that. In, in fact, I feel like I usually do that. I mean, I'm, I'm moving in that direction. I feel like I've got something that looks like trust a lot of the time. But I also do these stupid things over and over and over again that really seem to say that I don't trust God. So what's going on there? And then others of you may be saying, I know, I know I'm supposed to trust God. I just, I, I feel like I, I can't, or like, it's so hard this, this thing is so important to me, I don't know how to let go of it. Or when I've tried before, it just it hasn't worked out for me. So I want to do that. It sounds like the right thing, but I can't. And then I think there are some of us here today who might even be saying, you know what, I tried that, and it didn't work. God did not show up for me, so I'm done trusting Let's just agree right now that there is a whole range of experience and desire when it comes to trusting God, even inside the church. Just because we show up here on a Sunday morning or we attend our MC every week or we read our Bible with great regularity, it doesn't mean that there is a living, active, personal trust in God inside our hearts. And then on the other hand, just because our demonstrations of trust in real life falter and feel half-hearted, it doesn't mean that we're just frauds or that there's no genuine trust within us. And so I think this all really begs the question, why? Why is it so hard for us to trust God? Why do I find it so hard to act in my real life on the assumption that God is as good as his word? Why is it that I say that God is good, but it makes little difference to me when I need to be patient with my kids, but all I feel is frustrated impatience? Why is it that I say that God is love, but I just can't shake the feeling that, at best, I am mildly disappointing and displeasing to him most of the time? Why is it that I say that God is present, but it doesn't even cross my mind to look for him or evidence of his, his work and his showing up in a normal day of my life. Well, that's following that trail there is kind of where, where I would like us to go today. It's to look for an answer to why do we find it so hard to trust God? Because I'm willing to bet that is an experience that every single person sitting in this room comes up against. And then after we move into that question a little bit of why, we want to ask the question of how. How can we each take a step forward to trust him more fully, to get over the hump on the difficulty of trusting? 
Well, Brandon just read 2 Kings chapter 19, 14 through 19 for us. And this is a prayer that is plucked out of a longer story that runs from chapter 18 to chapter 20. It's three whole chapters there. And all of those chapters are one story fundamentally about the trustworthiness of God. At the same time, they're a story about the trust of a particular person, King Hezekiah. In fact, in the context of the books of First and Second Kings together, that's really one of the key messages of those books and definitely of this passage. Trust in God because he is trustworthy. And this prayer right here in chapter 19, it sort of stands as the high point of that. So <clears throat> let me give you a quick summary of those three chapters. I, can't, I cannot read them all to you. There's just too much going on there. Hezekiah becomes king of Judah, the southern kingdom of divided Israel, at age 25. His father, Ahaz, was one of the bad kings of Judah. If you haven't read the books of kings before, it goes back and forth. King, it just the succession of kings, some of them are good, most of them are bad. Kind of gives a grade to all of them like that. So Ahaz, not a wonderful king. But then his son Hezekiah ascends to the throne and things begin to change. He leads some major spiritual reforms in the nation of Judah, removing a lot of the idol worship that they had been engaging in. He even destroys the bronze serpent that Moses had crafted for the people of Israel hundreds of years before, back during their wilderness wanderings. This was a thing that at that time, Moses had made for them as a sign of God's presence and power with them, that they could look to it and be healed. But in the hundreds of years since and through the the idolatry hangover that they'd been experiencing from the other kings of Judah, they had started to turn toward this thing and worship it like it was another idol. <clears throat> so Hezekiah has been a very good king, but there are, at the same time, a couple of regrettable, I would also say humanizing episodes in his life that we read in these chapters. Early in his reign, one of the first things that happens is that he tries to buy off the Assyrian Empire from invading Judah. And he gives them all sorts of treasure from the temple stores. He even strips the gold off the doors of the temple. But it does nothing. He loses all of that treasure. Assyria still invades. And then at the end of his life, even after he has seen God rescue his people from the Assyrian Empire, and he's even experienced God's healing from a fatal illness that he was facing, and God added 15 more years onto his life. Even after all of that, historians on kind of a sort of note where he welcomes in these envoys from the, the growing Babylonian empire and he tries to impress them. He's like, look at all this great stuff I've got. Look how rich I am. Look what's inside my temple. And God sends him a message not long after saying, you're so concerned with making yourself look great in the eyes of these people here this will all be taken away from you by them, and your descendants will go off into exile in their nation. So it's not an exclusively 100% good evaluation that Hezekiah gets. It's a mixed bag. But overall, Hezekiah, as a king, gets a very positive evaluation. Honestly, one of the best. In some ways, he's sort of like a second David coming to the kingdom of Judah. And his trust in a trustworthy God is the golden thread that's tying all of it together. That thread is at its brightest 
in Hezekiah's prayer in chapter 19. It's clearly a prayer of deep trust. Just listen to this. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. These are the words of a man who believes to his core that God is good, that God is loving, and that God is present with him. He believes in a God who sees the plight of his people and is able and willing to do something about it. But what makes this prayer more striking and and standing out as like a high point of trust in God is what it's following after. When the Assyrian army finally comes knocking on the door of Jerusalem in chapter 18, its spokesman, this guy called the Rab Shaka, it's like a title for an Assyrian person, the spokesman tailors a message to Hezekiah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that's designed explicitly to torpedo their trust. It's, it's kind of like a spiritual propaganda message that he's delivering over a megaphone to all of them. And he, he comes and he says, essentially, you cannot trust the Lord to deliver you. And those two words, trust and deliver, they're actually the backbone of chapter 18. They show up again and again through this story Um, really, and they show up in chapters 18 through 20, they're clearly the central theme here. I'm going to read just a small part of it for us using the ESV because it translates the key word in here as trust so that we can see where it shows up. And as I do this, I want you to try as much as you can to put yourself in the place of a frightened, outnumbered, outgunned populace of this city, staring certain death right in the face. The Rab Shaka said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Literally what he says there is, On what are you trusting this trust that you have? Do you think that mere words are strategy, for, that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you're trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, isn't it he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Syria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to on your part, to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? A key idea that, is, that we've been pointing to through this Seeking God series is that we need to conf- confront and replace the false narratives that we hold about God, about who he is, about how he acts in the world. And this propaganda speech right here by the Assyrian commander is filled with false narratives, though they're sometimes kind of subtle. First of all, he's trying to convince the people of Judah that they are alone. He tries to destabilize how they think of their protection, where their protection is coming from, and really whether they have any. He says that they're really trusting in this 
military alliance that's kind of there with Egypt rather than trusting in God. And he says that Egypt cannot possibly stand up to the Assyrian army. Guys, you're on your own. You don't have any help. And then he wrongly suggests that they have betrayed and angered Yahweh, the Lord. That these were his high places of worship that Hezekiah had torn down. Now, that's not true, right? Hezekiah did tear down these altars, but they were pagan altars to Baal, to Asherah, to other gods. But again, in their idolatry hangover from previous kings, and in their panic at this invasion, that probably struck a very ominous chord with the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Wait a minute. Have we screwed it up? Are, are we counting on the wrong God? Have we ticked him off? Is he not going to help us right now? So here's where I want to start connecting this story with our story. Each of us has to deal with false narratives about God's trustworthiness. Sometimes those narratives are handed to us or injected into us almost very explicitly, kind of like what happens in this propaganda speech. In his wonderful book, <clears throat> The Good and Beautiful God, James Bryan Smith, who is a teacher and a pastor, he tells a story of counseling a young man who was paralyzed with anxiety. One day it got so bad that he could not even start his car to go for a drive. And this guy called Smith and he said, I am afraid that I might have some bad or evil or lustful thought in my head and in the next instant I might die in a car crash and I'm sure that God will send me straight to hell because I won't have time to repent. Well, Smith got to talk to him a little bit about what that idea was and where that idea came from. <clears throat> and this is what he writes. He told me that from the time he was a young boy, he had heard his pastor, a man who represented God and spoke on God's behalf, begging people week after week to stop sinning before it was too late. And if they did sin, they'd better be sure to repent before it was too late. God hates sin so much that he would send a person, even a baptized believer, into everlasting punishment for committing a single sin. This narrative of the nature of God that had filled this young man's mind from an early age was ruining his life. The God of his narrative was not worthy of trust. To trust someone is to believe that he or she has your best interests in mind, that the person will protect you from harm and is reliable. Instead of inspiring confidence and courage, his God made him afraid to drive his car. Some of us have had to suffer the effects of messages kind of like that from a religious upbringing that we've had. And let me be clear, that God and so many other gods like it are not the God of the Bible. That is not the God who Jesus calls Father. And unlearning those false narratives and untangling the mess that's left behind can take a long time. And until that happens to a significant degree in our lives, our ability to trust God, our ability to experience his trustworthiness is going to be severely impaired. But not all false narratives are injected into us so explicitly, like this guy with that pastor. <clears throat> Sometimes those narratives kind of grow up from within us, usually starting pretty early in life. They're so powerful that they have the ability to shape 
the deep terrain of our souls, mapping the contours of our most fundamental psychological and spiritual geography deep inside us. And even though we live so many years of life after those early experiences and we lay new layers of psychological and spiritual geography on top of them, they will continue to be shaped by the ground that was first put down there, the hills and the valleys of our early experiences of narratives about God, narratives about the world, and sometimes those hills and valleys are not in the right places. Psychology has given us some helpful tools that, that connect up with, that, that shine a light on how we grow spiritually. And one of those comes from developmental psychology, something called stage theory. God created us to develop in a way that takes us from immaturity to maturity, but in stages, by steps. We don't just, we're not born and then the next day all of a sudden we're a 65-year-old who's got our life together and is very wise. In our very first stage of development, which is birth to about 18 months, what we need to learn, what our, what our infant selves are trying to grow, is trust. Trust is the first thing that we need to learn as a human being. When we're hungry, or we're tired, or we're scared, or we're in pain, or we've got a diaper that needs to be changed, all we know is that our sensory input is telling us we need something to be taken care of, and we need someone to take care of it for us. So we cry. We reach out into the world the only way that we know how to see if anyone is going to reach back and give us what we need. And if we have loving and attentive caregivers, we learn that someone does answer. We start to connect that help with a face and a touch and love that we experience emotionally, physically, psychologically, everything. But if those caregivers in our early lives are inconsistent or they're unavailable or they communicate something to us that is less than love, we internalize the untrustworthiness of other people. And all of this, good or bad, gets hardwired into our brains and into our memories much more deeply than conscious thought. If we don't learn in these early years that our caregivers are reliable and they can be trusted, we are going to have a very, very hard time trusting in future relationships, and that includes our relationship with God. Now, a quick encouragement before I go much farther. A lot of us here in this room are parents. And if you are like me, when you hear a statement like that about the indelible impact that we as parents have on our kids like this, my first reaction is usually, oh, no. I've already messed that one up. So I'll just start putting money in a therapy fund right now. I've completely ruined my children. Well, take heart. We need to take heart together. I need you in the boat with me, actually, because the good news is that we only have to be good enough parents. We don't have to be perfect. A reliable, loving, responsive presence most of the time, that's what children need. And as we give that, we teach them that they can trust, that people are trustworthy. Now, there's another layer of developmental psychology here that picks up right at this spot, and it illuminates even more for us, both psychologically but also spiritually, how we grow, how we have a relationship with God. And it's called attachment. 
Attachment is all about how we create and maintain connection to other people in relationships. Our attachment style is our basic pattern or template for doing that, how we go about creating that connection. And it starts to form during that very early, earliest stage of our lives when we're learning to trust. But it continues to get shaped on in through childhood, maybe even on into adolescence. It tends to stay consistent over the course of our lives. Our attachment style impacts how we relate to parents, to spouses, to friends, to children, even to God. If loving connection is present for us over those very formative first 18 months of our lives, we're going to develop, we're likely to develop, a secure attachment pattern. Our basic template for relationships is that people are reliable for the most part. They're safe to have a connection with. I can trust them. And so we tend to form and remain in relationships in relatively healthy ways. But if that loving connection was inconsistent or if it was inhibited in some way, there's a good chance that we will develop some sort of insecure attachment pattern. Our level of trust toward other people in any kind of relationship, including a relationship with God, is obstructed in some way. And there are three basic kinds of insecure attachment. I want to talk about them briefly because I want you to hear possibly some notes of what you've, even ex- what you've experienced, maybe have even named for yourself, and how you have found yourself having relationships with other people, maybe even your own relationship with God. So the three basic attachment patterns are anxious, shut down, and shame-filled. An anxious pattern is one where we are constantly worried about and maintaining the state of our relationship. If we experienced a lot of inconsistency in our connection with our early caregivers, we start to believe that it's up to us to keep the relationship close. We don't trust that others are going to stick around or that they're, they're going to be there when we need them. And so we stay on this exhausting treadmill of always monitoring the status of the relationship, making sure that we're doing okay, and if we're not, moving immediately to close any of the gaps because that's all on us. The other person is not going to come our way, or at least they won't do it consistently. And in a relationship with God, that means that it is completely up to us to experience closeness with him. That's tiring. So we try to keep God close by performing for him, by reading our Bible, by praying, by serving, by engaging in all these kinds of spiritual activities, but we're doing them not because we think they open us up to experience God's presence and love, which is what they should. Instead, we're doing them because we're trying to close off God's exit routes. We're slamming the doors and barring them so that God can't get away. We're making sure that we grasp onto him And he's got to stay in the relationship because we're doing all the right things. That's anxious. The second kind of insecure attachment pattern is called shutdown. A shutdown pattern tries to turn off and then to lock away in the basement or even farther emotion. Keeping emotion away from relationships because we have learned that emotions are dangerous. They threaten closeness. They threaten relationships. If an infant learns that her crying usually makes her parents angry, she's going to start to put together that emotions really do the opposite 
of what she's craving. She's craving closeness. She's craving somebody to come near. But her emotions are the things that are causing more problems. She's going to interpret emotions, or at least certain ones, as causing disconnections. So she'll start shoving them down to the basement and ignoring them in order to stay close, in order to stay alive. Now, in a relationship with God, that can look different. It can look a lot of different ways. But the goal is really the same. Shut down uncomfortable emotions because they threaten your relationship with him. In other words, God can't be trusted with what you feel. One result of that, a pretty common result of that, is that we, we can retreat into sort of a cerebral spirituality. We, we worship God with pretty much only our heads. It can be easier to trust a system of beliefs or a doctrinal statement than a living God who personally engages with you on the level of emotion a lot of the time. Another common result is what one writer calls spiritual bypass. Instead of dealing with our difficult emotions or our circumstances or the trauma, by bringing it to God, we, we just stay in the safe place, pretty far away, kind of on the surface of our lives, and just stick with the, the spiritual platitudes like, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle, or God won't give me more than I can handle. Or if God opens, or if God, sorry, how's this go? If God shuts a door, he opens a window somewhere. Maybe you've heard that. There, there's a ton of them. I'm glad that I couldn't say that. I couldn't rattle that off my tongue. That means I don't say it very often. <laughs> it's also to stay, it's also easy to stay emotionally defended and distanced with God using the Bible. We can shove down our emotions with reminders out of Scripture, like Romans chapter 8. You know, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. That means that this circumstance right now where I'm dealing with cancer, you know what, I just need to kind of pluck up, put a smile on it, because I know that this too, God, is going to work together for my good. When we shut down our emotions... It's a demonstration that we don't trust the person that we're dealing with, maybe even ourselves, to deal with those emotions. The final insecure attachment pattern is shame-filled attachment. Early in life, we get some sort of messaging. It could be occasional, it could be pretty constant, that there is something wrong with us. Maybe our parents fly off the handle about a specific behavior. Maybe they ice us out and they give us the silent treatment. Whatever the case, we interpret the message of their behavior as, I'm broken, I'm ugly, I'm messed up, there's something wrong with me. Sure, they might love us because they have to, but they sure don't like us. And so we're caught. We can either stay safe but isolated, or we can try to press into the connection that we're longing for but at the risk of feeling dirty, ugly, wrong, broken somehow. In his book, Attached to God, which is all about attach, attachment theory in your relationship with God, uh, Crispin Mayfield <clears throat> describes it this way. We believe deep in our gut that we aren't, we aren't truly accepted because we have too many flaws. We can never relax into the arms of a God who constantly judges us according to a perfect standard, but at least we can try to get as close as possible by repeatedly demonstrating that we are aware we don't deserve closeness. Shame like that is a warping of what Scripture describes as our true condition. 
while we have sinned and we do sin and we are completely affected by sin, we ourselves are not sin. We are not damaged goods. We are beloved sons and daughters, image bearers of the creator, people whom God counts so precious that he gave his own son to bring us back. There's a difference between guilt, which is a recognition that I have done wrong, and shame, which is the belief that somehow I am wrong. A difference between doing and identity. But a shame-filled attachment pattern is mired in the I am wrong. It's mired in the identity, and it destroys our trust in God. There's so much more that could be said here. And if you want to explore in more depth what attachment has to do with spiritual life and our relationship with God, I really do recommend this book, Attached, Attached to God by Crispin Mayfield. <clears throat> the reality is that even those of us who have a pretty secure attachment, like we had a, a really wonderful upbringing and a wonderful family, we all experience the insecure ways of attaching and connecting with others to some degree. In fact, there's probably one that we tend toward the most. And the more that we can delve into that, the more we can understand what are the particular edges of growth that there are in my life with God. Now, just to bring this back to 2 Kings real briefly, obviously in the passage that Brandon read, and if you read the rest of chapters 18 to 20, there's, there's no stage theory or attachment theory that's talked about by name in that place. But you can see the outworking of its effects. Honestly, it's kind of a mystery to me that Hezekiah turned out as well as he did. When you think about his family of origin, his, his father, King Ahaz, a horrible idolater. But it points to something else, I think. It points to God's grace operating above and in and through and under his created order, including the things that we learn about human beings through psychology. Hezekiah was able to trust, but perhaps that was in spite of his family upbringing, not because of it. It's also worth noting that Hezekiah's son, who would come right after him, ended up being the worst king of Judah, Manasseh. And so there's no, there's no one-to-one correlation on all of this, just because Hezekiah seemed to turn the ship around was no guarantee that his children would. But Hezekiah's prayer in chapter 19 is a confession of deep, secure trust. And the prophecy from Isaiah that follows it in the rest of chapter 19 is a call for, him, for Hezekiah and for the people of Judah to keep looking to the Lord who is and who will continue to be good and loving and present with them to save them. Now, all of this that I've said has been to describe why we've had such a hard time trusting God. <clears throat> if we're dealing with false narratives about who God is and what God's like, if our ability to trust was inhibited very early in our development, if we developed an insecure attachment pattern that we also use with God, if those things are true, then of course we're going to have trouble trusting him. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We should expect that. Of course, we're going to have trouble experiencing God as a trustworthy God. So the question then becomes, how can I take steps of deeper trust toward him? I'm going to suggest just two things for us. One of them is a reflection, 
Maybe something that you can do in your journal or just time in prayer in the week ahead, longer than a week. And the other is a simple practice. It's one that you can do in five minutes, but you can spend as long as you want doing it when you're getting ready in the morning, driving in your car, taking a break at work or school, whatever. First of all, the reflection. Take some time to reflect on how you have learned trust in other relationships. Think through your own story. Consider your own real-life relationships. How easy or how difficult has it been for you to really trust other people in relationship? And you might have to do some thinking about that. Maybe you think you are a pretty trusting person. But when was the last time that you were able to share that vulnerably with someone? If your parents are still living, you could... You could even talk with them about this potentially, not to communicate any sense of judgment or condemnation to them, but simply out of curiosity, what was it like for them to be young parents, specifically young parents of you? Maybe that was a lot harder than you think. (laughs) And as you listen to these stories and as you delve into your own story and maybe even start to tell your story to some safe people, what do you notice about your own attachment style, how you connect to other people coming up through that? And as that becomes clear to you, how might you reach out in your closest relationships, how might you reach out in your relationship with God to reveal this to them? So that's a reflection. The other step, the other invitation here is a practice of prayer. And specifically, it's the Lord's Prayer. James Bryan Smith makes the essential point that if we are going to replace our false narratives about God with true narratives, then we need to get to know the same God that Jesus knows, the God that Jesus calls Father. And the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is an excellent way to do this. But I would invite you uh, to pray this maybe differently than you normally do. I, I invite you to pray it slowly and contemplatively, lingering over each of the phrases in it. And as you meditate on who this God is through the words that you're praying, you'll find that the Lord's Prayer actually addresses a lot of the common obstacles that we have to trust. I can't run through the whole thing in detail, but in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, James Bryan Smith does a really wonderful summary of the different phrases in the prayer and what they mean. God is a God who is present. He's a God who is pure, which means he's good. Not good in a way that grinds us down in shame, but a goodness that that comes toward us, that invites us, that heals us, a goodness that delights to put its goodness into us. He's a God who is powerful. He's a God who provides. He's a God who pardons, and he's a God who protects. When we actually, we're we're actually going to practice this in a second. The idea here is that you could practice this every day in the week ahead. You could go much longer than a week. Pray it slowly and contemplatively with the expectation that our trustworthy God is going to meet you and he's going to reveal himself to you more in that prayer. So if you could write that stuff down if you want to, but after you do that, I want to have you just close your Bibles, put your stuff down, and we're just going to walk through the Lord's Prayer right now doing this. I'm going to lead through it phrase by phrase and just expand a little bit on the phrase that Jesus gives to us, talking to God about it. And as we do that, just allow yourself to encounter God 
in the phrase that is there in that prayer. So you can close your eyes. You can take a deep breath, get comfortable in your chair. And as you let that, as you feel that breath filling up your lungs, we're recognizing that God is here. He's good and he's loving and his Holy Spirit is present in this place right now giving us life. And as you breathe that breath back out, you can breathe out the care, the anxiety, the worry that you might hold about your trust, the level of trust, the consistency of your trust in God, or whatever the other cares are that you've got there. Breathe back in the love and the presence of God. Breathe out your reliance on him now. Our Father, who is in heaven, Lord, you are near. Your being in heaven is not an end of the universe or far out in outer space sort of thing, but the heaven of your presence is one that is all around us but veiled to our eyes right now. The heaven where you dwell is the place where you are most present, where your will is done perfectly, where you draw near to the humble, the contrite, the brokenhearted, where you reign in your goodness. You are near. Hallowed be your name. God, you are pure. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. In, in you there is not even a hint of darkness, not a shade of night. You are the one who dwells in unapproachable light, and at the same time you are the God who dwells with the humble and the brokenhearted. In your purity you don't hold us at arm's length, but you welcome us in and you make us new. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your will cannot be thwarted. You are a powerful God. What you say always comes to pass. The promises that you make, you keep. You are not just willing, you are able. And you are able for us. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, you are the God who provides. You give us what we need. You give us more than we need. You give us the very desires of our heart, the deepest desires of our heart. You are not a God who is stingy or hesitant or withholding. You are a God who delights to give good gifts to his children.
Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lord, you are the God who pardons. You are gracious and compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Show your love, Lord, to thousands and thousands of generations, including us. Though our sins be as scarlet, you will make them white as snow. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, you are the God who protects. You are a protector. Lord, while we know that we are not immune to harm, we know that we are held by you and kept by you from any ultimate harm. We know that you are with us. We know that you defend us. We know that you fight for us. For yours, Father, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.